Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson, and we got two guests. First time we've ever had two guests, yeah, four. I think. Like four. Yeah. There's four of us total. Four, yeah. To us two plus two guests exactly. equals four. I got yeah. it. So we got two guests. Uh, ladies, go ahead and introduce yourselves. Well, I'm Meredith. And I'm Alana, and we're fourth-year pharmacy students. Yes, fourth year pharmacy students. How long have you been on your fourth year, like starting rotations? Uh, almost three weeks. We are very experienced. <laughs> nice, three weeks in. Is it? Would you say the greatest experience of your life so far? It is absolutely the greatest experience. <laughs> and the best rotation you they've had. That. Best rotation they've had so far. And you're probably going to write a really nice <laughs> recommendation <laughs> review <laughs> preceptor of the year. All fives. So for. All of you that are now super confused, um, they're both stuck with me on rotation this month, so they oh. have to hang out with me for an entire month. I feel right sorry now. for them. Oh my gosh. Oh my I cannot gosh. imagine. <laughs> listen to you talk for a whole entire month. Oh my gosh. That's why I don't listen to my own podcast. I know. You guys have podcasts where I'd only have to do 45 minutes. And you but... can stop and pause and take a break. Right. So, days. yeah, um, glad to have y'all here. At first, they said they weren't going to do the podcast with us, mm-hmm. and then we were like, listen. We, then we got them into the room. Do you want an A or not? <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding. So, yeah, we're, uh, I'm glad you guys decided to, to, to get on with it. Um, can you give me a little bit of background, if you're, if you're cool with it? Um, background on like what your like, kind of goals are for after school or where you see your, what career path you see yourself on? Right now, I kind of see myself going towards retail, but I don't have much experience in the hospital. So we'll see how fourth year goes. Are you keeping open to uh, like residencies and AmCare, things like that? Yeah, probably more AmCare, but um, we'll see. Yeah, hospital is interesting and you'll get, I guess, probably maybe one, one, if not two inpatient rotations and the rest will be critical care. But hospital wasn't really my thing, at least inpatient, because even though, you know, patients and customers can be annoying sometimes i still like interacting with people so and i really like my job in independent community pharmacy and so i'd like to be in that field or in the ambulatory care um, because i've really liked the experience i've had in that as well awesome so one of the things i hear people talking about is how uh independent pharmacies like may or may not be around much longer they've been saying this for years right um i actually think that's completely backwards and and I used to kind of fall into that same group because I just heard other people talking about it. But the more I got to know like some of the independent models and how they're doing patient education, I actually think independent pharmacies are like the most innovative and doing all the right things for you know the current reimbursement rates and all that. Um, what do you think? I mean, do you feel the same way or are you really happy with independent pharmacies kind of as a whole and you enjoyed that setting? I have. I mean, I think it really depends on the owner and their mindset. Um, the owner of the pharmacy that I work at is really business-minded, and he's really cornered a part of the market and um, done well in Charleston. So I think it really depends on where you're at and what your um, patient population is like there. But I think they've done really well. Have they had to move a lot into specialty compounding? Have they done, have y'all done much with that? Because I know there's a lot of money in it, and a lot of a lot of independents have to go towards that with. Uh, hormones and things like that because there's big reimbursements for them so part of what that pharmacy has done is they are a compounding pharmacy and they do a lot of hormone replacement therapy they're also a specialty pharmacy and so we fill a lot of specialty drugs and then it's also a mail order pharmacy okay so it's a lot of pharmacies in one small tiny building right interesting <laughs> that's pretty cool yeah yeah i think specialties were as far as dispensing, like when we think of like a dispensing pharmacy, I think specialty is going to be where it's at. That's where the money's at, yeah. for sure. That's why regular retail pharmacies that you go to have to put out this immense amount of volume because reimbursements are so small. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go to a pharmacy that is, dispenses cancer medications, they probably don't dispense too many, but the profit margin is really high because if you can get those paid for, the there's a lot of profit, a lot of right. money to be made in specialty stuff. And, you know, and it's not just about like, oh, great, well, now we can charge people more for these crazy meds. I mean, these are, there's meds out there that are curing diseases that were completely untouchable not too long ago. So, like Pepsi. Uh, yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, HIV patients, HIV. for instance, they're living not a cure, obviously, but they're living basically normal lives in a lot of ways yeah. um, with some of our new agents. So I think specialty med, uh, you know, like, like you said, Cole, if you can get them paid for, I think that's the model that a lot of dispensing pharmacies need to go after. 
Otherwise, they need to get in uh, to jetpacks and drones because yeah. Elon Musk get on get on oh, board man. with him. Whatever he's doing, all he has to do is say the word. I'm I'm in. <laughs> we haven't done one on HIV yet, have we? I don't think so. We referenced that new drug that came out, mm-hmm. but otherwise, I, I think that talked about. We, uh, we need to do HIV at some point. Big Tegravir when it came out in, in combination. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't think we've done an HIV one. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put it on the books. We'll get there. It's on the list. It's on the list. We have a huge list. A huge list. We throw a dart at the dartboard <laughs> and pick one. We should do that. That'd we should. I also got a, a uh, somebody that um, listens to it actually messaged me on Instagram and said he wanted a uh, C diff uh, okay. breakdown because there's new guidelines out from February. Okay, we and, could um, um, talk about um, whatever they're called probiotics a little bit too within that. Yeah. And uh, the new the new guidelines aren't huge fans of probiotics, but yeah, we I can definitely talk yeah. about. I wouldn't think so. But, um, but yeah, they, uh, they there's new guidelines from February, and so he, he listened to the flash briefing because one of my Alexa flash briefings had it on there. Uh, he said he he's like, yeah, it's great, but can we do a whole podcast? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I love it. Feedback <laughs> finally. Good. So on the list, on the list, on the dartboard, huge list. So many topics that were just so fluent. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lie. Yeah. All right. So today. Mm-hmm. The moment you've all been waiting, waiting for, waiting, I messed up my intro, <laughs> doggone it. So the moment you've all been waiting for, we're talking about insomnia. Yes. Sleep issues. Yes. But mostly insomnia. But mostly insomnia. <laughs> so it's, it's a tough one. It is. It's, it's very prevalent. It's very common. You're going to see it a lot, especially in your elderly patients. And what do you think of when you think insomnia? You think Ambien, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that. Turns out there's a lot of other options and um, a lot of potentially safer non-pharmacologic options to try beforehand, but we'll get into all that. I liked how you paused and then told me the answer because you knew by the look <laughs> on my face, I had no idea what I you just, were talking about. I had to make sure. That <laughs> you, you said, and what do we normally think of? You're like, yeah, he's got nothing. <laughs> you just kept going. <laughs> oh, oh, that's good stuff. Okay. That was good. That's how we're starting that's to vibe a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. See, that's why we, we can, read the play. With the new podcast room, we can look at each other. Mm-hmm. Beforehand, it was just like looking straight it at the It was this awkward, like, first date looking situation. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird. Yeah, I like this new room a lot better. So Plus, we got who? T Rex RX. T Rex RX. Yeah, I knew what you were going for. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's because we talk about them constantly. <laughs> People are still like, what is that stupid dinosaur doing on the wall? <laughs> Anyways, back to pharmacy and oh, yeah. medicine. So, where do you want to start? Um, so, insomnia. What is it? Trouble sleeping. Uh, in the past, people usually associated it with other comorbidities, specifically psychiatric issues, but also diabetes, hypertension, whatever you want. They thought that you had to have a comorbidity to give you insomnia. They've really seen in the last 20 years or so that's not the case. People can have insomnia as a standalone um, issue, a standalone disease state, basically. And it can really impair quality of life and ultimately long-term health outcomes, which we'll, we'll get into later on as well. But that's that's more or less what it is. And if it's, if it's affecting their day-to-day function, because people are having trouble sleeping, that's more or less insomnia there you go so do you want to what do you want you want to talk about risk factors or you want to go into some history because we're bringing back that oh yeah little portion you know what let's let's do history which isn't really a history lesson but as i was looking over (laughs) i don't know why i call it history (laughs) as i was looking over insomnia i came across some like very strange sleep disorders that are kind of scary um, that are a little bit associated with with insomnia but um, some I'd heard of, some I hadn't. One is Klein-Levin syndrome, KLS, which is a little bit nuts. It usually happens in uh, people who are, are males at about 15 years of age. For anywhere from six months to like three years, they'll sleep for like 23 hours a day. So they're up for like an hour a day, and then they go back to sleep for a really long time. You can't really arouse them. You can't wake them up. And if you do, they're kind of groggy and sleepy. And this is just something that happens to some people that they eventually grow out of, which Shoot. I think is kind of crazy. Another one is sleep paralysis. So this one's a little more well-known. People may have heard of this or experienced this. One of these, I feel like we could do a pretty interesting like half podcast on, by the way. Half podcast. Half podcast. A whole yeah. new thing. Like the intro part can be one of these because it's super interesting. Sleep paralysis, basically when you're falling asleep and you're in REM sleep, you dream. And your body has to more or less paralyze itself because otherwise you would act out your dreams physically. Um, so sleep paralysis is you're actually waking up, but your body hasn't unparalyzed you. So you're awake in some sense and cognitive, but you can't move. And a lot of times at this period, people may even still be dreaming a little bit. 
and they might um, imagine that somebody is crushing their chest they'll have feelings of dread and get really scared they'll imagine that like a demon is on their chest um and it lasts for a few seconds you can't move or scream or anything and it's kind of terrifying you think you're going to die and there's case reports of this like throughout history which i think is a little bit insane but the last one i wanted to mention is fatal familial insomnia which is this goes a little bit uh, more into insomnia but it's a genetic disorder where you literally don't sleep so you it's actually you can die from lack of sleep which isn't ultimately what kills you it you get you know issues with autonomic nervous system issues with blood pressure and heart rate because of this but you go anywhere from a few months to multiple years of not sleeping um and the average age of death or the average time of death after acquiring this is about 18 months and it's almost inevitable that you'll eventually go into a coma and die from lack of sleep fatal familial insomnia any yeah, you said it's genetic this is like a genetic thing like yeah. the, any idea like i know you didn't spend a lot of time researching but no. like any idea like pathophys bond even though it's genetic I we don't. should look that up. Yeah, we could maybe we could do a half podcast mm. on that. If only we can find some interns I to do know. all of our hard work for us. There are, there are people who can do that. We will. <laughs> we'll be on the lookout. So uh, introducing insomnia, I thought that was fascinating because some very interesting other sleep disorders that you don't really think of, but people have mm-hmm. happened to them. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So I guess we can start off with you know sleep hygiene because that's the thing that we always sort of. I feel like kind of overlook, um, you know, I think if someone's a, uh, deals with sleep and medicine, you know, all the time, this is obviously very uh, common to deal with insomnia and, and dealing with sleep hygiene. But, um, you know, as, as pharmacists or, or like general practitioners, uh, whatever it may be, I think that uh, not putting enough emphasis on sleep hygiene is definitely a, a problem. Agreed. So one of the first things that we need to consider is sticking to a regular sleep schedule. So you hear this all the time, right? You you have this job where you have to get up early and you have to go because you really want to pay your electric bill. And you wake up and you're tired and groggy all day, but you suck it up and because you're an adult and you get through the day, go to bed, happens again the next day, you're tired. So on Saturday, guess what? You're catch up catching on up on sleep. Yeah. And then you sleep too much and your body then goes back into this off cycle, if you will. And then Monday morning starts all over. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you need to make sure is that patients are sticking to a regular sleep schedule. So even though it's the weekend, you'll be okay. Go ahead and get up early. I promise you'll be more productive. Um, well, maybe not, but I do. <laughs> it definitely has been uh, shown to improve the ability to fall asleep later that night. Um, also, regular exercise routines. So this is kind of a two-way street because you want to make sure that you're getting enough exercise to where your body's having to... Uh, you know, work and obviously you'll feel more tired as it's trying to heal and process the repairing of all those muscles and all that um, later that night. But you also don't want to exercise too late in the evening because then you get all revved up. You get your playlist on Mm -hmm. and that's it. You're not going to sleep. I'd always heard three hours before bed, but I'm seeing other recommendations that are like four to five hours before bed. Don't exercise before that. So if you are, that might help you. Just do it earlier in the day. And again, like this is if you have insomnia, we're not saying right. if you fall asleep immediately, don't work. If that's your workout time and it doesn't bother right. you, go for it. Right. This is, these are things that you would try if you're having trouble sleeping before you start popping ambience. Let's see if we can figure something else out first. Exactly. So go to bed when you are sleepy is another very simple but important concept. If you go to bed and you're not sleepy, you start laying there. And you start thinking about the fact that you're not sleeping yet, which means your mind starts racing. You start thinking about the next day when you're going to be tired and you start anticipating all this. And then all of a sudden you become anxious. And then that turns into the bedroom, which is supposed to be a very nice, quiet place and peaceful place, turning into a place where you associate with anxiety. And again, another vicious cycle. So yeah, that yeah. one's that one's tough for me because usually... If I'm going to bed when I'm not sleepy, it's because I need to get up early the next day, and I've been staying up late recently, so mm. I have trouble falling asleep because I'm not tired, but you got to go to sleep. You got to get up early. So that's your know. body saying, I'm ready to go still. What are you doing? I know. Might as well just stay up all night. I don't know like if Mike. that's real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, definitely, uh, if, if that's something that you know, you're struggling with and you feel like you're watching the clock, then you definitely want to avoid going into, into the bedroom when you're 
when you're not sleepy. I'd heard some other recommendations. If you're having trouble sleeping, say you can't fall asleep mm-hmm. and you're not sleepy, like you said, you don't want to just sit there in the bed. You can get up, go outside of the room. The recommendation is between 10 and 20 minutes. Do something else that um, if you're if you're falling asleep, it probably doesn't matter as much. But if you wake up during the night, do the same thing. If you're having trouble getting back to sleep for about 10 to 20 minutes, and they say not to do a rewarding activity. So don't reward yourself for being up in the middle of the night, like even eating, but even cleaning or getting being productive, they say. Do something very non-productive. So it's like, man, the body doesn't have any reason to get up in the middle of the night to be productive or do, or do something else. And you should uh, be able to get back to sleep a little earlier. And I've seen that you just kind of keep doing that until you fall asleep. But yeah. it's weird. It's almost like you're trying to like trick yourself into feeling depressed. <laughs> I mean, that's a really, or at least tired, but you know what I mean? It's right. just a weird, I've always had a, I've heard that several times and it's always like, don't do anything that feels good or like that you feel <laughs> right. accomplished. Like, Oh, I just, I'm sad right now. Let's go, go to sleep. <laughs> well go to sleep. Yeah. It's kind of strange, yeah. but I mean, it works. So definitely uh, give that a shot. Um, you know, the, the other things, you know, eating in the bedroom, um, doing wrestling with the dog in the bedroom, anything that's going to kind of like rev you back up or, um, you know, whatever it is, you know, it is, and you're not, uh, you're not actually preparing to go to sleep. The, the bedroom is, is basically supposed to be for sleeping and for sex. That's what they say. Yep. And, and that's it. You shouldn't be doing other things. Even nope. reading, they say, Yeah. especially if it's like an exciting book. I think they said you could read like um, you know, Webster's Dictionary or something if it's super boring, but something that you're interested in reading, they say not to do that in the bed. And I, I would, I'd be curious to see if they've done like comparisons. That I haven't done any, like, I haven't looked this up, but I would think that even reading, which I know like, you know, there's lots of people that makes them tired, but I'm saying people who struggle with insomnia, I think for, for me, I would think reading would also like, you're still having to think, you're still moving your eyes, you're still, I mean, actively yeah. considering it. So I would still think that that's... Sure. Not a great method for everyone, at least. I agree. Along with stuff being not a great method for everyone, a lot of things that are very commonly, people will have some alcohol before they go to bed. They'll call it a nightcap. And this is very common because it does help you fall asleep. At least it feels like it helps you fall asleep. But ultimately, throughout the night, and especially long term, the patients aren't getting as restful sleep. Um, and, and the, the sleep quality long-term is not going to be as good. Also, of course, there's risk for dependence and interactions with other medications and side effects to go along with that. So we really don't recommend alcohol before bed. Yeah. I think definitely the dependence is the biggest factor. Yeah. Cause you start associating that need to, in order to fall asleep. Right. And even if it's not true, it's psychologically true right. in your own mind. Which is so. why you, you become dependent on sleep medications is kind of for the same Mm -hmm. reason if it's not a benzo which has just inherent um, addictive qualities some of the other ones do too but a lot of it is you just don't think you can fall asleep without that sleep medication so Mm -hmm. that's that's in a way you're uh, physiologically or i should say psychologically dependent on it right so that's some sleep hygiene things to consider and uh making sure you're at least at least kind of going through those options before you're just jumping to meds like Cole said. Right. I like this one also. It says don't go to bed hungry. So I can't eat for within like hours of has so many hours of going to bed. But then I also can't go to bed hungry. Yeah, you got a real He's got a real, real dilemma, dilemma there. That's not good. <laughs> or deal with your worries before bedtime. I think that's a funny one. Um, I really need to call my mom. I know. I my mom listens to all these too. She's going to be like, that's not funny. I'm going to get a text. I guarantee it. <laughs> I guess the point is, you know, obviously if you're worrying, your mind's going to be racing. Yeah, absolutely. Can't sleep. But well, that, and, that, and that's not even just worry, but for me, like. Things to do. I feel like last night I got my, I got all excited because I was thinking about some stuff that we're going to do for the uh, next like farm two, mm-hmm. starting up soon for the PAs and I was all jazzed up. I'm like, oh shoot. Can't go to sleep <laughs> no, I can't now. go to sleep. So I'm all excited. So this podcast is partially for Mike because Mike doesn't sleep very much. I so do. When we it's get, not, when we get into the, um, the health outcomes with, with lack of sleep, um, we might point that at Mike. This is an so. intervention with, <laughs> with Beats headphones yeah. as I'm drinking a caffeinated beverage right. in the <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, which Speaking it says. Which, uh, do yeah. we want to talk about like how long to wait after drinking caffeine to go to bed? That's like, a good. I, I don't know. Do we go for it? I'm so like pumped. Sleep. You just jumped in. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was just thinking about like some people have higher to- some people have higher tolerance for caffeine, but a lot of people drinking it any time in the afternoon can affect them being able to sleep at night. And so 
for people that have insomnia yet, um, specifically should stick to drinking caffeine in the morning. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So for generally sure. the, the, the good practice is if it's after lunch, avoid caffeine. Yeah. Hmm. That mm. sounds miserable. I know. <laughs> no I monsters. I personally do that. But <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's but do you have trouble sleeping? No. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So, um, so yeah, that's, let's, that's uh, let's talk, culture. should we, let's talk about sleep deprivation before we jump into meds. I think that's pretty interesting too. Um, sleep restriction therapy. Sleep restriction therapy. That's what I meant. What did I say? De- de- deprivation. <laughs> I was listening to her. That's why she, so yeah, we can do that. <laughs> I, did want, me up. I did want to mention a couple of um, risk factors. Cause I think we did kind of skip over the risk factors for, we did. for insomnia. So there's a lot of, um, disease states that have insomnia kind of associated with them. Depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, even PTSD. PTSD is also associated with nightmares, which can also or obviously um, cause you to have trouble sleeping. Chronic pain, hyperthyroidism, um, urinary issues, BPH especially for men, which, you know, if if above 50 and 60, unfortunately, that's just kind of something that pretty much happens to everybody, but that can keep you up. Also, GERD, so that's one of the hallmarks of acid reflux is it waking you up. Um, all those are, are things that I think about with risk factors for insomnia. Yeah. So, like, as far as, like, nightmares or dreams that wake you up, when my wife, who's also a pharmacist, first got licensed, she was working at a retail pharmacy that had a drive through And I, I, probably five days after she'd gotten licensed and been working full-time, I was, like, kind of, like, in that part where I'm, like, drifting off to sleep sort of thing. And she had been sound asleep for like 30 minutes. She jumps up and like almost like hits me in the chest. She's like, did you get the drive through? Like, oh boy. It's already oh, time for a vacation. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. And then she just like looks at me a little serious and just lays down and just uh, out again. <laughs> did so you get the drive through? I became or not, a technician Mike? immediately. <laughs> it was interesting. Oh my. Yeah, we, yeah. we bring our work home with I'll us. Tell you what. Apparently. Jeez. Anyways. But also drugs. So there are medications that can keep you awake. Uh, we mentioned caffeine, yes. which is obviously a drug. Also, any stimulant has the risk of keeping you awake. Uh, Sudafed is kind of the over-the-counter that I think of that could potentially keep you awake. Um, corticosteroids or inhaled um, beta agonists like albuterol can cause those issues, and alcohol can long-term end up um, causing insomnia. I think stimulants is the one that I see just so odd. Like people will take their, you know, their their second dose of the Adderall in the afternoon. Yep. And then they can't figure out why they can't go to sleep. And right. well, obviously, you took a stimulant too late. Just back it up a little back bit, if up. possible. See what we can do. Do some homework a little bit earlier, if possible. I know it's not for everybody. There's definitely exceptions. But uh, the, the stimulants will definitely stick around even when you don't necessarily feel like they're in your system still. Yep. And I mentioned antidepressants, which is kind of counterintuitive because if you have depression, you're going to have insomnia. So why start an antidepressant that's going to give you more insomnia? Usually, it's transient, so short-lived has to do with the serotonin acting on the serotonin reuptake inhibitors and that sort of thing can keep you awake. Or if it's acting on norepinephrine or even dopamine, that can keep you awake too. But usually over the course of a couple of weeks, that kind of subsides. And ultimately, long-term, your insomnia will be better. Yep, yep. So that's risk factor. So yeah, sleep restriction uh, therapy I thought was was pretty fascinating. So along with sleep hygiene and avoiding risk factors, before you get into into medications, there's relaxation techniques. Um, So systematically, more or less relaxing your muscles from like your head down to your toes. It's kind of strange, sounds strange, sounds a lot like meditation, but you know, there's some data behind those types of things working. Um, Also a little bit of data behind slowing your breathing before you go to bed. Um, decreases your vagal response and apparently helps you sleep but sleep restriction is a little bit different so a lot of times people who have insomnia they'll say okay i know i'm not going to sleep much so i need to stay in the bed for as long as possible to make sure i get as much sleep as possible the way sleep restriction works is basically you'll have your patients create a sleep diary so no matter how long they're in the bed they'll keep track of that but they'll also keep track of how long they slept how many times they woke up so even even if they were in bed for eight hours but only slept for four hours then you'll say, okay, only stay in bed for four hours. That way, while you're in bed, you can associate that, hopefully, with the sleep that you're getting, and you'll sleep for those four hours. Um, Also, avoiding daytime naps is important. Um, And if the patient's insomnia is getting better, say uh, the sleep efficiency increases above like 90% or so, then you'll extend that period that they're in bed for 15 to 30 minutes. 
So really, however long you're sleeping is how long you should be in bed, and then you gradually titrate that up to where they're hopefully sleeping throughout the night. And that's just one, one thing that a psychologist or psychiatrist may try. There's also cognitive behavioral therapies specifically for insomnia, other things that, which isn't super common, but other things you could consider before going to these medications, which we'll see aren't all ideal and a lot have side effects that are definitely uh, concerning. Yes, yes, they can be, potentially. Yeah. So I guess we'll start off with benzos. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's something that we don't always, usually we're thinking more of like the uh, the non-benzos, uh, hypnotics like Ambien, things like that. But um, benzos can definitely be used for sleep. Um, you know, the, the problem, kind of like Cole said, is you definitely can have some dependence. Um, oh, yeah. They, they can have, depending on if the patient has other comorbidities, so, you know, someone who's on opioids for chronic pain management or something like that, obviously we're putting them at, at higher risk for, um, like, you know, obviously respiratory uh, distress mm-hmm. and potential failure. Overdose, um, yeah. You know, there's there's all kinds of uh, long-term potential side effects, you know, falls, things like that that can, can uh, lead to problems. Um, this is better for, you know, like an on, like I guess a an onset, uh, sleep onset, if you're having issues falling asleep, um, especially if it's something to do with like anxiety, um, obviously being an anti-anxiety medication, um, it can help maybe uh, calm the mind so that when you, you can get to, get to sleep and uh, think happier thoughts. Yeah, um, once but also general somnolence is just going to make you tired. For right. Sure. Um, the, uh, the, the big thing to consider though, is, is how long these medications are actually going to stay in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so how long they, they, you know, they act and that's where things can get a little, little, uh, iffy because if you're using these medications, um, like lorazepam, you know, has a half-life of about 10 to 14 hours. So you really have to make sure that the patient is having, making sure that they're okay to driving in the morning if they have to go to work. Um, especially if they only they're new to benzos and they're only taking it at night for this one reason, um, you know if they have a patient that's on it multiple times a day, obviously they're able to function without uh, concern. But you want to make sure that the patient is not impaired in the morning. Um, Tamazepam also can have up to a 15 hour half life. Um, you'll see uh, triazolam, especially for sleep onset, um, used sometimes, not very often. It's pretty short acting. Yeah, two yeah. to five hours or so. So. Um, that one, I'm, I'm, I'm actually starting to see more of that now. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are big ones. They'll use other ones like estazolam, lorazepam, um, florazepam, but I frequently see temazepam, and I guess, like you said, yeah. triazolam's coming up too. But you'll see a recurring theme throughout all these is the um, daytime drowsiness, issues with driving within a couple of hours of waking up. Those are definitely concerns. Uh, also, the, the dependence... Um, potential for overdose and that thing obviously concern and you have to weigh that against the benefit that you're going to get so um, based on one big meta analysis and really a, a couple meta analyses incorporating similar trials typical uh, benefits from benzos that you're going to see is potentially a decrease in sleep onset so falling asleep by about 10 minutes and then an increase in total sleep time by 30 to 60 minutes so 30 to 60 minutes might make all the difference for some people when you're considering that um, against the use of a benzodiazepine for a pretty significant period of time, you know, is that worth it for that patient? And I don't think we mentioned how long you should really treat these patients. So this is really important. So a lot of times when a patient gets started on Ambien or some other um, sleep medication, they are more or less on it for life and they never come off. Um, There's two types of insomnia. There's acute insomnia, which is usually associated with some type of life event or something that's going on that's a stressor in their life. Uh, that, that would mean having trouble sleeping for about a month or so. If that's the case, you can try this out for just a couple of weeks, maybe a month max. And then at that point, now that the stressor is over or we've gotten a better handle on their sleep and some better habits, we might try tapering off the sleep medication and getting them back to not having to take a med to fall asleep. For chronic uh, insomnia, it's, a, it's, it's really kind of similar. The idea is to only have these patients on it for really a max of six to eight weeks. And then at that point, so a couple months later, let's try to taper you off and give it a try. And if we need to, we can always restart it. But as we know, once patients get started on these medications and they're sleeping better, they don't want to come off them. 
Right. Um, especially if they're not having side effects or anything. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, kind of moving away from the benzos, the, the more commonly used medications uh, is are named the non-benzos. Right. So it's easy to remember. And um, half of them incorporate Zs, and I think that's funny because yeah, got to catch some Zs. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably why they did it. I think so. <laughs> you never know. So the one we see the most often is, is Zolpidem. Yep. Um, Ambien's brand name. Uh, so there's several different formulations of Zolpidem, and you know, the the one that we commonly see is the immediate release, um, just regular plain Ambien, half life of approximately 1.5, 4.5 hours, somewhere in that range. And not as long as I thought. I, I kind of assumed it was the full, you know, seven or eight hours, but it's really a yeah. relatively short half life. It just right. happens to stay in your system for quite mm-hmm. some time. The duration of right. effect. Duration of effect, different than half life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Taking it way back to. I know. Pharmaco kinetics. Kinetics. Man, jeez. Hmm. Way back to like two years ago. <laughs> so, this uh, the, the one of the weird things with with Zolpidem too is because it does have uh, a little bit shorter half life than some of the other agents. Then uh, there there are patients that have an easy time getting to sleep. It's staying asleep. Yeah. So whether it's a nightmare waking them up, or they just happen to wake up in the middle of the night, or they have to get up to use the restroom and can't go back to sleep. Um, there are instances where patients can take um, a tablet in the middle of the night and. Uh, go back to sleep and then get back quickly. Right. Um, and then uh, the the problem is obviously the dose, right? Because you want right. to make sure if you're giving someone, you know, if they're on the 10 milligram tablets, that's probably not going to be out of their system by the time they wake up. They do make a dissolvable tablet. Um, uh, what's the brand? Intermezzo? That sounds right to me. Um, Intermezzo is 1.75 milligrams to 3.5 milligrams. And uh, like I said, dissolvable tablet, so you don't have to worry about getting a glass of water and middle of the night you can just dissolve them go back to sleep uh and th- one of the package insert requirements is that you have to have at least four hours of available sleep so if you wake up at five and you're supposed to be up at six you don't want to pop a an intermezzo and <laughs> sorry intermezzo is the um the brand name for that zolpidem but it's also the the name of a casual serbian and italian eatery in charlotte north carolina <laughs> well that's good to know <laughs> that's good to know michael as you're out. laughing i'm like shoot i'm saying the, the wrong name of this drug i was pretty sure that was right now no, you're no. looking up eateries over there <laughs> supposed to be my wingman oh jeez okay well we're gonna have to take a trip i guess we can also we can add a new segment where we just talk about food? critique restaurants that has nothing to do with medicine <laughs> all right we're just doing yeah. whatever we want now. we're gonna have 18 podcasts all different subjects Oh All right. Anyways, sorry. Yeah, back back to your point. I do, I do think it's it's good to, which you you reference this, but when a patient comes in with insomnia and you're considering now drug therapy, you have to say, okay, are you having trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or are you waking up during the night? So Mike mentioned that, and um, obviously, if they're having trouble falling asleep, you're going to go with something more short acting. If they're having trouble staying asleep, you want something that's going to act throughout the night. If they're waking up during the night and can't go back to sleep. There's really only a couple of options that he mentioned, but those are like the super quick acting that will hopefully, they, the recommendation is don't take unless you have four hours more to sleep because, right. you know, they still act for a little bit. And there's one quicker acting that would be the one that I would actually recommend, but we'll get to that in a second. Yep. Um, going back to the intermezzo, the dissolvable Zolpidem, the, uh, like I said, at least four hours of available sleep, but you also have to have at least five hours available prior to driving okay so that's the other thing if you're one of those people that can roll out of bed and hit the road five minutes later then uh you probably need to take that into consideration right so they give you a full hour to to get your hair done hair done gelled up oh yeah oh Mm -hmm. you know it takes me a while (laughs) i can only imagine (laughs) hair's always perfect Uh, no that's why there's gel in it (laughs) (laughs) hasn't put anything in his hair in years so, okay, so the one that I was talking about that is a little bit uh, quicker acting even than the, the Zolpidem, um, Zaliplon, Sonata, has a very short half-life. Mm-hmm. It's about an hour. Mm-hmm. So, and this was actually pretty pretty interesting because I, I had a patient one time who was on Ambien, and they brought a prescription in for the Zaliplon. And I was working with another pharmacist at the time, and they didn't want to fill the other one. And the patient was saying, no, look, my doctor told me to take both. And the, mm. the pharmacist didn't want to fill it because he was thinking the patient was lying to him, and they mm-hmm. had just gotten the, the uh, Zolpidem. Um, and so it was a good discussion period. Um, so one of the things that can happen is you're taking Zolpidem to get to sleep, mm-hmm. wake up in the middle of the night, 
you don't have enough time to necessarily um, take another dose of Zolpidem, especially if you're on five or ten milligrams. Right. And so you can take the the Zaloplon, which is a very similar molecule um, it works very similarly and it has a very short half-life so you can get back to sleep again uh, it, you know it's one of those things it's not it's definitely probably not a very common thing right. um, however there are going to be patients that would need that and you need to take that into consideration and consider the kinetics of the drug before you're just assuming somebody right. or even if you're going through a patient's chart as a provider you don't want to necessarily discontinue uh, medications you find out if, if you you think they're duplicates make sure they really are right and definitely not ideal because of course taking both is going to put them at increased risk for side effects but that is a reasonable thought process and as they get older that's where you get more concerned with you know the side effects if they're young and healthy always reassess how they're tolerating it when they come back in especially um, for these ones that are controls you're going to have to prescribe at least every six months so ask them how they're tolerating it if they're doing okay with it and like i said hopefully they're not on for six months or more but Unfortunately, that happens most of the time, it seems. Yep. All right. And, well, there is a uh, – the other one we didn't mention either was Zolpidem extended release. Yeah. So there is a 6.25 and a 12.5 milligram extended release tablet right. for so Zolpidem. That, right. So that's what you would think of more for if somebody's having trouble staying asleep throughout right. the night. Um, in, in, in less than just having trouble falling asleep, you would mm-hmm. go more for the ER, which I think is more expensive probably. Yeah, it's generic now, so I think it's... Is it generic now? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, it's definitely coming down, but I think the regular NB, I'm sure, is is still cheaper. Yeah. Um, There is something that, you know, they say technically the extended release doesn't seem to be habit-forming. However, um, that's obviously still... Might have to use your clinical expertise yeah, there. Yeah, that's definitely. I mean, that's that's what their uh, some of the trials have kind of indicated. But it's still a controlled substance. Um, still something that you'd have to be really careful with. But if you needed them on something, you feel like the patient it would be at risk for that. Maybe it would be something to to consider because because it's extended release, you're not getting that immediate immediate and like yeah. potential, I guess, euphoric effect. Right. If if at all. And it's easy for us to to or me at least to judge and be like oh my gosh how can you have this elderly person on ambien or this person on 10 milligrams of ambien but people got to sleep they they do and a lot of people really struggle with this so it's a significant issue that you'll you'll run across with patients Mm -hmm. stop being so judgmental i know always always the judgy one (laughs) that's you (laughs) no i'm just kidding cole significantly nicer than i am (laughs) it's been proven evidence-based evidence-based all right, so then the other uh, non-benzo that we didn't talk about um, actually is the one with, with the longest half-life, so Lunesta, yeah. S-Zopaclone. Um, what's, what's the animal in the commercial or the insect? You remember? I have no idea what you're talking you know about. No so everyone always says the butterfly. Oh, like it is that. a butterfly. It's not. It's a lunar moth. Oh, whatever. Okay. Uh, that's a Dr. Wayne Wirt uh, special. He says it every time I go around and then cracks up laughing because they, they call it a butterfly. He's like, yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, I, love I, it. I, I, I see it coming every month. I'm like, yes. He does it every month. <laughs> and if, if this drug comes up, it's pretty funny. That's it's hilarious. good stuff. So Lunar Moth and the Lunesta commercial. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Get it? Lunesta. Yeah, Lunar, Lunar. Yeah. Look at what they do. Whew. Marketing, man. Tell you what. These people are geniuses. Marketing assassins. <laughs> but yeah, very, very long half-life. And we'll talk about some of the safety concerns with both of these as we go on. Um, but Ambien, they find levels of it that are shown to impair driving and potentially judgment um, long after the patients wake up. A Sopaclone or Lunesta is one of those that they also do. Uh, so they recommend always starting patients off at one milligram and then only titrating if they need it. But um, we'll, we'll get into that a little more at the end. All right. So let's uh, dive into some of the more random. Random. Yeah. I guess this next one's not really, I wouldn't say random. You see but it occasionally. Yeah. So... The uh, the next one we should definitely mention is uh, Suvorexant, I yep. think is how you pronounce it. Um, Belsamra. Mm-hmm. That's what I say, just in case. I usually go to the brand name if I can't pronounce the generic. Yeah. That way people think I'm smarter than I really mm-hmm. am. It's a orexin uh, receptor antagonist. And I remember when this kind of first started being discussed, some of the clinical trials uh, were first showing the mechanism and all that. I, I was pretty excited about it because it seems very smart. Um, you know, we've always gone with things that try to stimulate the receptors that cause fatigue and cause drowsiness. But orexin is actually 
the neurotransmitter that's involved with like wake feeling the feeling of wakefulness. And so if you can inhibit um, the or yeah and block the receptor, um, you're stopping that feeling of wakefulness mm-hmm. and you can go to sleep. So they're coming at it from like a completely different angle than the uh, benzos and, and non benzos were coming at it. So definitely definitely pretty interesting. Um, unfortunately, it's got a pretty long half-life. Uh, so you'll have a lot of people talk about, about 12 hours. Yeah. You'll have a lot of people talk about, uh, feeling fatigued the next day. Yeah. And, um, it's also brand name only. So it's definitely, uh, very expensive. There's yeah. some discount cards and things like that, but it's usually a free trial. And then whether or not the patient's insurance pays for it, usually it's a at least a prior authorization. Yeah, and it's dosing between 5 and 20 milligrams. So that max of 20 comes because about 5 in 50 patients, at least in, in one study, um, had next-day driving impairment because of somnolence. Uh, so that's something to, to consider. With these medications, definitely important to start low and go slow. Just if it, try give it the lowest dose to shot for a while, and if they're still having trouble, okay, fine. We're going to increase your dose, but here's the precautions Here's the warnings. Really be careful if you're driving or operating heavy machinery. So what would you consider to be a good time frame for a trial for your first dose? That's a great question. I would say at least a couple weeks. Okay. Say at least a couple weeks, but uh, it depends on the patient. I think that's patient specific. No great guidelines for insomnia that we could find really. FDA has a lot of good safety data out there. Um, But yeah, a lot of this is just kind of got to play it by ear, unfortunately. Not one of those things with a whole lot of data. It's interesting. A lot of things, you know, same with like treating like general depression. There is no, you really have to just see what that patient responds to. Yep. And you have to kind of try a few different things. We have a general idea. Yeah, there's star D to kind um, of guide a little bit, but still that's, that's about all we have as far as steps of therapy. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and obviously, you know, as someone who's a psych specialist is maybe would go all, uh, away from the study algorithm and, and get, you know, more on based on their clinical judgment of what they've seen and what kind of outcomes and things. Right. But uh, even that, you're still having to change meds and what works for one person yep. definitely, you know, will, may not work for the other. So yep. Same with the no, ambient uh, tends to be like 90% universal. It is, but. yeah. That seems to be the one that the people get the most effect out of. But there are cases where you have to just keep trying stuff. Yeah. So what about other meds? Are we going to talk about those? Yeah, we can mention melatonin. That's the one okay. we uh, everyone just pops over the Everybody counter. Everybody likes melatonin, don't they? I saw that. Uh, I think it's I think it was Dream Water or something. Dream Water uh, like, with the, the liquid melatonin. Uh huh. Like it was like the five hour energy knockoff, but it makes you tired. Mm-hmm. It gives you five hours of sleep instead of five hours of productivity. <laughs> Completely different direction. <laughs> yeah, melatonin is a hormone, so it's naturally produced in your body. Most people are familiar with this. Uh, secreted by the pineal gland and more or less uh, controls your circadian rhythm or plays a part in controlling your circadian rhythm. So the idea is that, okay, if we take this right now, it's going to tell my body it's time to go to sleep now instead of like two hours from now when I don't want to be awake. Um, so it, it, it affects the, the sleep-wake cycle. At this point, there's not a whole lot of great data to say, yes, it works. Um, interestingly, the data that is there is at much lower doses than like three or five milligrams. It's like at like a milligram or less, um, but it's still not great. So uh, it has been shown to be safe short term for about three months or less. So if the patients want to take it, it seems to be fine. Longer than three months, we don't have great safety data. So, you know, if it works for as more or less of a placebo for them or if it's working for them, then let it go for a while. But just like all these other medications, it really shouldn't be. None of these should be a long-term fix it really should be short-term while they work on their sleep hygiene and we hopefully do some trials off of it before we continue a long-term and you know i think uh this isn't something that's discussed a lot but you know i, I one of the things that i'll i've heard mentioned with, with melatonin is it's not something that's necessarily going to induce I guess it's the feeling of wanting to go to sleep. It's something that you need to take because it's like Cole said, it's getting your circadian kind of back in, in line. So you need to take it and then actually try to go to sleep and right. then follow the sleep hygiene and, and allow it to, to work the way it's supposed to. If you take it and then you fire up the Xbox, it's probably not going to do much for you. Right. And this isn't, this isn't from like, um, this isn't like evidence-based, but it seems like if you took melatonin for long enough, it, with those sorts of things, your body tends to be like, okay, well, maybe I don't have to produce as much as this. And if you stop taking it, you might have some rebound issues, but hopefully it would figure it out eventually. I'm sure that's 
a concern that people have long term. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. That's just me. Oh, melatonin dependence. Yeah, melatonin. It's a vicious, <laughs> vicious scene. Um, so as far as prescriptions go, there are uh, something. There's something similar to um, melatonin, and that is melatonin. I believe is how it's melatonin. Uh, melatonin. Yeah, I can never pronounce that word. I mess up every time. Rosarum. And, uh, you know, that's similar concept. It's a, you know, melatonin agonist. And uh, the thought process is obviously it's going to work similar to uh, melatonin. Not all that efficacious. Um, I've seen some randomized trials where they've tried to do it in hospital patients, um, you know, trying to prevent things like delirium and, and all that. And, well, they do melatonin in uh, hospital patients yeah. to prevent delirium. Yeah. Um, but, but even that, like, there's not super great evidence. It's just a lot cheaper than giving them some of the other meds right. and with much less side effects than like Seroquel. Right. <laughs> so there's definitely something to, um, to consider, but it's out there. I, I don't see too much of it though. I don't know. Do you, do you guys see that very often? I don't Rosarum? think I've ever dispensed that now. Okay, good. I was just trying to make sure you guys were still feeling like you're part of it. <laughs> we're hogging, we're, the, we're, we're hogging the conversation. Here. Yeah. We tend to do that. <laughs> Usually it's just the two of us though. So it's fine. Right. <laughs> But speaking of Seroquel, I think that's an important point. So there's some other medications that aren't necessarily indicated for insomnia, but people frequently use them for insomnia that I don't know should always be used for insomnia. So Seroquel tends to be one of those. They use it at super low doses because it has a pretty significant antihistaminic effect. Uh, It's going to make you drowsy and it's going to help you fall asleep. So I see Seroquel 50 very frequently um, for sleep. And if a patient doesn't have an underlying psychiatric disorder, we really should go with something else. And ultimately, even if they do have an underlying psychiatric disorder, it's a super low dose and probably isn't going to affect their symptoms, their psychiatric symptoms that much. Um, So just consider that. And there are a lot of side effects associated with that as well, same as any of the other second generation antipsychotics, um, as far as QTC prolongation, metabolic syndrome, even potential for EPS type symptoms not as commonly though, so definitely be careful there. Seroquel, that's the one they isn't that correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't that the one they call like baby heroin? Yeah, they do. So it's this. I think we actually talked about this in the um, antipsychotic podcast. Did so we? I think I referenced it. But um, interestingly, it is a little known street drug. So people will use that more or less to decrease their um, crash from a cocaine high. Hmm. Uh, they'll use Seroquel. And if you take Seroquel, they won't just use it at like the standard 100 to 600 dosage. Uh, they'll get like four or five, you know, 300 milligram tablets and take those things. And apparently they can have some sort of euphoric effect. I don't think it's significant, but they'll use it along with cocaine to kind of decrease the, the intense crash you get from that high. Hmm. And so they especially use them apparently in jail. It's very common um, for them to be passing those things around. So. They should really stop doing that at jail. <laughs> that doesn't seem very cost effective. Um, real quick, too, I wanted to mention, because if you're ever looking through some of these drugs, um, you see the uh, remelteon. You may also see testamelteon, um, which is also a uh, melatonin agonist. That is under the brand name Helios. Uh, that is a medication that's approved for non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is typically uh, only seen in patients that are blind. Mm-hmm. So they can't really, I guess... Um, have a good circadian the, rhythm based yeah, on light. The light, yeah. exactly. So they can't tell when it's nighttime or daytime. So they, it helps them get their circadian rhythm back on normal I see a lot pattern. of commercials for that. I, I used about to. about non-24. Yeah, I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen in a while. But yeah, that's uh, something to at least be aware that it's out there. Obviously not what we're talking about, but in case you see one, you know, think, oh, they missed one. Yeah. Trying to cover all of our bases. Yeah. What about Benadryl? Benadryl. So people use Benadryl a lot. And kind of what we were told, I feel like in our self-care class was Benadryl is okay for a few days, like two or three days, if somebody is transitioning their sleep schedule. Uh, But generally, it's not particularly recommended, Mm -mm. uh, especially because it's pretty long acting, relatively speaking, uh, and that people can have just as much next day drowsiness as with these other non-benzodiazepine um, sleep medications. So that's something to consider. Most people consider it relatively benign. I know a lot of people who take a Benadryl every single night of their life to sleep. Um, probably not the best idea. You know, if you're young and healthy, how much is it going to matter? Hard to say. 
but you know, give yourself a trial off of that because I know it's it's self-prescribed very frequently. But um, uh, side effects would be decreased alertness, diminished cognitive function, delirium. Even it's probably more in elderly patients, mm-hmm. and then also all of the anticholinergic side effects that that you're going to have. So probably not. not Did highly we talk about the age that is normal for people with insomnia? Is that, is that a risk factor? Risk Age is definitely a risk factor. So more common in elderly patients for sure, but it can occur at any age. So that would make death and hygiene even more of a concern oh, yeah. in elderly it, patients. It's on the beers over six, yeah. Yeah, for patients over 65, so I really don't ever recommend it. I mean, even even for urticaria and itching and rash, if I have an over 65 patient come in, say, where's your Benadryl? I'll be like, well, here's a second gen. It's going to work just as well for that, and you're not going to get the, the risk of falling and okay. stuff like that. So. Yeah, and, yeah, and I, I just, that's the big thing is talking to them about the risk of falling. So right. if you are going to take this, uh, you need to make sure that you're stationary. Right. You're not going mobile. <laughs> going rogue. <laughs> so um, it just uh, like you said, it's not usually recommended. The um, American Academy of Sleep Medicine Clinical Practice Guidelines from 2017 um, have it listed on there specifically that they do not recommend diphenhydramine as treatment for sleep onset or sleep maintenance insomnia in adults, period. Yeah, so let's give something else to try before that. Um, I can't remember what I was going to say. Moving on. Great. Podcast is over. Just lost it. (laughs) All went off the rails. Uh, there's a antidepressant doxepin mm-hmm. is used sometimes. I believe I want to say that's still under a brand name. When it uh, Solenor, Solenor. Uh, I don't think it's is that what it is. That sounds right. Yeah. If only we had researched beforehand. Well, let's see if there's a nice little eatery in North Carolina that's named the same thing. Hopefully. Yeah, Solenor. Yeah, that's what it is. Okay, nailed it. I almost said Soliqua, but we talked about that earlier. We did. Totally un- unrelated. So doxepin is actually indicated for insomnia. So mm-hmm. that's one of the the few antidepressants that actually is but um would we use that people do at low doses three to six milligrams some people will say hey i'm going to double dip with this patient who's depressed and is also having trouble sleeping a lot of times if you get the depression under control generally speaking they're it's going to improve their insomnia um because you know doc spends a tca it's definitely not without its risks right and um you know it's one to one or three milligrams and uh, the, the, one of the trials that was looking at its efficacy showed kind of inconsistent results and inconsistent improvements uh, with at least some of the major outcomes that were studied um, using the one milligram. Um, and it's, it is still uh, expensive. I've yeah. seen a few people that have tried to get it, but their insurance is not, not having it. So a lot of times what they'll substitute is Elevil or amitriptyline. Mm-hmm. And that 25 milligram dose is super common for sleep because you're going to get a similar um, a histamine response, which is going to make you tired and help you fall asleep. But these drugs, like we said, aren't without their side effects. You're not going to get any depressive benefit from that low dose of amitriptyline. So, you know probably would steer towards something else similarly with trazodone i do see trazodone used a bunch in patients with underlying psychiatric disorders um, because they're already on a lot of other psychiatric medications and they think this might help you know i'm not a psychiatric specialist so i can't really say for sure but for the general population usually not the best idea for insomnia if they have depression with um, comorbid insomnia get their depression under control first let's address that it should help the insomnia, and if not, then we will, you know, address it at that juncture. Yeah. Something, uh, the other thing to consider, too, is trazodone has, like, this sort of, I don't think you mentioned this, but uh, has this sort of plateau effect, typically. Did you oh, say that? No, but, yeah, I've heard um, that for sure. So, you know, it works for a little bit, maybe, to, to help them go to sleep, but uh, eventually just kind of stops working. And, you know, with orthostatic hypotension being one of the potential side effects. And priapism. Yes. Which is never good. No. Uh, Pretty person is the worst. But, but, you know, the orthostatic hypotension, and you see this in elderly patients, they, I see trazodone prescribed quite often uh, in elderly patients. And the orthostatic hypotension isn't like something like a beta blocker where you, you work your way up and eventually goes away because your body uh, kind of realigns or realigns its homeostasis in regards to your heart rate and all that this kind of just doesn't go away a lot of times you'll have patients that they always have orthostatic hypertension it really can increase your chance of having a fall yeah so you get tachyphylaxis more or less with the sleep Mm -hmm. but with the orthostatic hypertension you don't and i should have mentioned that with seroquel because that's a huge concern with catiapine 
is um, orthostatic hypotension. Definitely. Yes. So, also yeah. increasing risk for serotonin syndrome if a patient's concomitantly on an SSRI or SNRI or anything else that can increase serotonin. So yeah, the again the American Academy of Sleep Medicine does not recommend either of those. You gotta trust those guys. Yeah, I, I mean they seem like they know what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, we would hope so. Um, what else? There's a couple other things we could just mention. Um, the over-the-counter, some of the herbal products, uh, valerian, it's the one you see the most of mm-hmm. um very very mixed results as far as the, its actual efficacy um obviously a lot of these things are not regulated so you're kind of taking a gamble as far as what actual dose you're getting mm-hmm. um so it's yeah it's one of those things that uh, not typically recommended not recommended by the guidelines um you know in a healthy patient not taking other medications no comorbidities probably not going to hurt them but um i wouldn't uh if you have an elderly patient on a fixed budget with other medications, I would encourage them to maybe not waste the money. Yeah. And I referenced this earlier, but I think it's important to mention that in the doses for Ambien, uh, which you'll very commonly see pretty high doses of Ambien, especially the 10 milligrams. So basically in 2013, the FDA came out and said for safety purposes, we're recommending lower max doses of Ambien now. So in females, almost always they're saying max it at five milligrams. That's for females under 65 years old. And they recommend that. They say in men should also consider that too. But, you know, it just depends on the patient, depends on their size. Uh, For patients over 65, you've got the beers. And the beers basically says don't use Ambien in anybody over 65. So beers is going to say no to pretty much anything that is CNS acting at all. uh, But it's definitely something to consider because falls are a real thing. Fractures are a real thing with elderly patients. And you have to consider that. But the reason they have these lower recommended doses is because blood levels of Ambien, you can correlate that to um, impaired driving um, that increases risk for an accident. And that's 50 nanograms per mil or anything over that is what they consider um, being that impaired. And in 15% of women at that 10 milligram dose, um, they were above that threshold after um, eight hours of taking the medication. And about 3% of men, so it still does happen in men, but because of that high risk uh, that they were concerned about, that's why they said really shouldn't be having any female um, on more than five milligrams of Ambien at this point. But it happens all the time. Yeah, all the time. I had somebody on 20 milligrams not too long ago. No way. Mm-hmm. Insisted that 20 milligrams was the dose. It was needed. I mean, you know, it is patient specific, but it man, is. that is. Yeah, you gotta be real careful. Yeah, you gotta be careful. So there's a uh, a matched cohort study uh, from back in 2012 from the British Medical Journal. Um, they looked at hypnotics and whether or not they potentially had an association with mortality or cancer. Uh, again, this isn't like randomized control or anything like that, but um, one of what they found was that patients receiving hypnotic prescriptions. Uh, were associated with greater than threefold increased hazards of death, even when prescribed less than 10 pills per year. Really? Uh-huh. This wow. association held uh, in separate analyses for several commonly used hypnotics and for newer short-acting drugs. Control of selective prescription of hypnotics for patients in poor health did not explain the observed excess mortality. Yeah. So definitely something to be aware of and not something to be given out like candy. Yeah, for sure. And to finish up, I did want to reference one study here, uh, not so much talking about these medications, but just talking about the importance of sleep. It was published in July of 2017, so almost a year ago, in the Oxford Academic Sleep Journal. Uh, But basically they looked at um, about 160,000 patients. It was really the biggest study of its kind. Uh, looking at sleep habits in these patients. So they categorize them as sleeping less than six hours a day, um, being short amounts of sleep, six to eight hours being regular sleep, and greater than eight hours being a lot of sleep. And they were looking at cardiovascular outcomes and metabolic outcomes long term. They followed these patients for about 18 years. Basically what they found was for the short sleep group, the patients who slept less than six hours a day, were at higher risk, about 12% increased risk for central obesity, higher risks for elevated fasting glucose, hypertension, low HDL cholesterol, hypertrichosideroidemia, and about a 9% increased risk for metabolic syndrome. So long-term, you know, we think of it very short-term and that the patient is feeling tired and bad the next day, but long-term you can have negative outcomes because the patient isn't sleeping. And of course, there's a lot of other 
co- uh, pond founders that can go into that. But the group who slept more than eight hours had lower risk for hypertriglyceridemia and lower risk for metabolic syndrome. So that's where we get get back to Mike because he doesn't like to sleep. But he has been doing better recently. He's sleep shaming me. <laughs> yes, I'm, sleep, right? I'm sleep shaming. I am the judgy one. You yeah, said I was so judgy. You said I was judgy. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> how do you live with yourself? I don't know. I don't know how I do it. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. Yeah, that's good. Fun. What y'all think was the time of your life? <laughs> Riveting. Absolutely. Yeah. It's invigorating. Fascinated Ooh, over there. Y'all are so lucky <laughs> that you got to witness this live. It's all downhill from, hill from here. Yeah. You know, there's no there's, rotation that's gonna ever amount. Get you to, on a podcast, that's for sure. Yeah, that is for darn sure. Yeah. yeah. Now, do people watch or listen? Who knows? But yeah, probably not. Probably not. But hey, it's fun to just talk with headphones on. Yeah. <laughs> Into these nice microphones. So I, I'm going to share a quick story because um, I think it's funny. Ooh, uh, anecdote. Nice. Yeah. Um, wh- I just got my like uh, faculty evaluation that this where the students kind of graded me on how they thought I did. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the PA students now. Uh, how they thought I did as a pharmacology alleged professor. Alleged. <laughs> and uh, not convicted yet. No, not convicted. And one of the comments for suggested improvement was uh, everything is great. However, I really wish he would post all of the podcasts in video form because I prefer those or something along those lines. <laughs> and we all had a good laugh about that in the conference room because it's like, this is, this is nothing to do with the class. Right. <laughs> that doesn't go on my evaluation. <laughs> but it was the, the best comment I've ever, ever had. That's for awesome. sure. And for those who don't know, this podcast is in video form. Check us out on YouTube or even some of them on Facebook. So yes. You can see our pretty faces. Oh, you don't want to miss it. <laughs> and you probably do. But... Yeah, good stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, please let us know if we can do anything to improve or if you have suggestions or if you want to hear a certain topic. Uh, we're always open to feedback. So let us know. Send us an email. Um, I'll put all of our contact in, in the uh, contact information in the links. And then also uh, reach out to us on all the social media platforms, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and all the above. And, uh, yeah, it's been real. See you guys later.